Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Cami McGovern. Cami is the mother of a 25-year-old autistic adult and has recently published a book titled Hard Landings, Looking into the Future of a Child with Autism. She has also authored three novels for adults, including Eye Contact, two books for young adults, Say What You Will and A Step Toward Falling, and two books for middle-grade readers, Just My Luck and Chester and Gus. All feature young people with a variety of disabilities at the center. Cami is also one of the founders of Whole Children and Milestones, a resource center for children and young adults with disabilities and their families in Hadley, Massachusetts. In today's conversation, we discuss the disability cliff for autistic adults who turn 22, varying types of adult services available across the U.S., the movement away from institutional settings and sheltered workshops, the overlooked value of congregate settings, skills parents should prioritize when preparing their kids for adulthood, tips for parents whose children are approaching this stage in life, and sex education. In this episode, discover what's possible when success is measured in belonging. To learn more about Cami, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Cami McGovern. Hi, Cami. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Can you introduce yourself for our listeners? Um, yes, I am a longtime fiction writer with three children, the oldest of whom has autism. Early on in my career, I started writing about characters or including in my fiction characters with autism and other disabilities. And so most recently, I've been writing a lot of children's books. But as my oldest son approached adulthood and this transition out of school services and falling off the disability cliff, as it's known, I wrote an article for the New York Times that seemed to resonate with a lot of people. And then I got lots of people saying, oh, we'd love to have you write a book about what that was like. And my idea on that, so here's the book that's actually coming out today. Oh, it's today. It's today. Yeah. One of the goals of it was that I didn't want it to be only about our family and Ethan. I wanted to do a little research and find out what this process was like around for other families around the country and what different states were doing and what was happening, how it varied, because it is so Byzantine and such a big, huge unknown for parents who have been working hard and tracking their 
child's progress all through these school years. And I wanted to offer up what I found in one year of travels around the country for what it looks like, what's possible. And there were, I made a lot of discoveries. It looks very different from one state to the next. And some states and some areas are doing a great job at certain things and not at others. And I discovered that for my own state as well. I also learned a lot more about what's possible. And so I wanted it to be not too grim or dire. I wanted it to be a book that was full of what proactive parents can be doing ahead of time. So for parents that are approaching this, for parents of younger kids, what are the things that they might be thinking about and doing now to prepare for the best adulthood for their child? Mm -hmm. So let's back up a little bit and talk about this disability cliff. Could you describe why it's called that? Parents quickly learn one of the great benefits to getting an autism diagnosis in the U.S., and that may not be true everywhere, but I think it's increasingly becoming true, is that you get, it allows you to access a huge range of services, and um, it's the best diagnosis to ensure those services, because there's autism-specific funding often, and so once you're on that train, you're very accustomed to OT, PT, speech, language, depending on your state, of course. But what doesn't get talked about enough is that that does not extend into adulthood and that there is a federal mandate for transition services. Even this, I wasn't completely clear on before starting this book, that the federal government pays schools to offer transition services for kids between the ages of 18, at least, and 21 or 22, for kids that are not able to graduate from high school. And they do want to ensure that there's vocational training and independent living training in that, that they're prepping kids conceivably to be able to go out on their own. The problem is, as many parents know, they get to the end of that age, 21 or 22, and they're not ready for to waltz out off to college, or that's not in their desires or capabilities, or off to a, a job. And at that point, the states vary a great deal on what they will offer that huge contingency that has a less formulated path or a less clear path after the school, the federally mandated transition services are done. I wanted to look closely also at what good transition programming looks like and what it seems to want to emphasize and maybe what parents might start emphasizing on their own, because I think it's not always for every kid the best to be completely focused on vocational training, if that's not anywhere in their desire. So that's what I was kind of looking at was that little period and when the services stop. Okay, got it. So in your research during that year, what did you discover as far as the types of services that are available? Could you kind of define what they are, you know, kind of going from the older institutions to what a sheltered workshop is or what a group home is? 
the first and main thing parents need to know is that it varies a great deal from state to state. We live in Massachusetts, which is one of only a handful that guarantees some kind of adult services for everybody who's DDS qualified. So if you are Department of Developmental Services qualified, you will have some services when you graduate and turn 21. There really are, I think, less than five states that guarantee no waiting list. In most of the states, they were operate with waiver funding, which will be very familiar to some. And you're working when your child is younger to get a waiver, which means the reason it's called that is because the parents are waiving the old idea that all these kids would be going to institutions after they're turning 18 or 20. And if you waive that, you then get waiver funding, which is home and community-based service funding. It's almost like a ticket and a certain allotment of money. The problem is most states are running out and there are states with shockingly long waiver wait lists. So in Pennsylvania, that waiting list is estimated between seven to 10 years. In Florida, it's about the same. It's closer to 10 years. And Texas is one of the worst. Those are just examples. And the numbers of families and individuals on those wait lists are up in the 300,000s. It's a half a million nationally. So it's up, you know, in Texas, it's a shocking number. It was 250,000 or something. So the point being that those 10 years that you're on a wait list for services are the most important 10 years of a young adult's life. You've been working all that time to make so much careful progress with all these teachers and all these IEPs to then suddenly have no place to go and nothing to do on the day of your 22nd birthday is shocking for parents and is shocking for the individual. The assumption is that Very often, one parent has to leave work and stay home to watch or to monitor if this is somebody who needs supervision. And um, what I'm seeing happen in other places is that, for instance, in Massachusetts, we're getting a good variety of day programs. And um, that's what you're guaranteed is day services, but very little or very limited, I should say, in what they're offering for residential services. Could you describe what a day program would look like? So the uh, movement away from institutionalization began back in the 1980s. And for very good reason, institutions were very abusive or could be very abusive and could lead to terrible lives for the people that were within them, all begun with the best intentions, but often that congregating these individuals in a separate and isolated setting resulted in terrible treatment. The replacement for those was determined to be smaller settings and group homes. And what's happened now is that the need and the the numbers of people that are entering the system, the huge explosion of autism diagnoses has meant that we've not got 
enough group homes. There can't possibly be enough group homes for everybody. And we need to look at more alternatives. In my state, 80 to 90% of those individuals live at home with their parents until their parents are no longer able to care for them. The other issue is the day programs. And that's what you were asking about. The sheltered workshops began 75 years ago, to try and encourage people who were disabled or returning vets from the war to retrain for jobs. What happened with sheltered workshops is that they became an automatic, uh, people with disabilities were funneled into sheltered workshops, which often do piecemeal work offering way lower than minimum wage. So there would be people in sheltered workshops who would get checks for $9 every two weeks or these kind of astonishing, terrible wages. So a movement began starting with some Supreme Court cases that tried to dial back all congregate settings in the idea that institutions were bad, so were congregate settings and so were congregate work settings. Sheltered workshops became a real focus and there was an effort a movement to close all of them. The problem with that was that sheltered workshops offered a whole lot of other things besides fair pay. They were a community, I would say starting with the community, but also a place where people really wanted to be. And they were successful at the work and the money seemed to matter less. My sense now is that the effort to close sheltered workshops was very well intentioned to say there's now been, starting about 20 years ago, a group called Employment First that argued persuasively the goal should be all of these folks working in the community, but we'll never have that happen while sheltered workshops are there and families feel safe sending their disabled adults to the sheltered workshops. That's better than the risk of trying to get them to train and be successful working at CVS or a community-based job. So the effort to close the sheltered workshops was motivated by the effort to get people out into community-based jobs. Great ideal. The problem is they're just frankly, aren't enough community-based jobs for that to happen. So in Massachusetts, for instance, in 2016, they closed all sheltered workshops. And quite a few states, Rhode Island did that as a result of a Supreme Court ruling. And I would say we've gotten, we closed sheltered workshops, meaning they all became community-based day programs that are holding that are holding patterns. They used to pay, uh, you know, uh, those individuals much lower than prevailing wage. They're now day programs setting them up to transition to community-based jobs. But those jobs just aren't there. A fraction, if there's 200 people in the new community-based program that's taking the place of the sheltered workshop, maybe 10%, oh my gosh, less than that, are getting actual jobs. So what's happening with those folks? And what's that's what I was looking at. Or what are the alternatives to... Shutting sheltered workshops, most people would say we still have to see how that works. It's going to take time. It may take 10 years for the world to acknowledge that our population is more capable and more able to do community-based jobs. And that, that may be a good argument, but I would also say there's a decent percentage of those folks who aren't so interested necessarily in community-based jobs. They're interested 
in community and in purpose of life. And that's what I want to ensure is happening for everybody. For my son, for Ethan, he tried community-based jobs and they were too stressful for him. And I think there's quite a big percentage of this population that would fall into that category. So I ended up thinking the closing all congregate work settings might be too extreme when there's so many kids that just aren't prioritizing or their parents prioritizing, I want my kid working in a CVS or a grocery store. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking about the varying wait lists, for example, across each state, is that due to the funding not being allocated in the right places or a lack of funding or just a lack of awareness? Or what do you think some of these barriers are? It's interesting. I think it probably varies from state to state. A lot of states would say we just don't have the money to do these ideal programs. Getting people supported in community-based work is very expensive. It's much more expensive than sheltered workshops where they can all be overseen because the staffing. I think sometimes the issue is very well-intentioned. And that's why I would love to start a sort of more honest conversations about what's out there. In Massachusetts, they're... Um, Close to all sheltered workshops, Ethan now currently is at a farm in Western Massachusetts that is focused on hiring people with developmental disability and is hugely successful at it. So they currently have between 70 and 80 employees, two farm sites, CSA, farm store, lots of community interaction, and lots of people love being there. But the state does not love it because it's a congregate setting. And my sense is, and that's very clear, they always are putting new limitations and threats threatening to kind of come out and say, look, we were trying to change sheltered workshops. How is Prospect Meadow Farm any different than a sheltered workshop? Justify this existence. I think they haven't closed it because it's so popular with parents and families. But my sense is in idealizing inclusion and non-congregate settings, they might have thrown out the baby with the bathwater because a lot of for a lot of individuals, congregate settings are where they are most successful by far. And so in saying all congregate settings are bad, we're missing how how much value there is to them being able to choose the people they want to be with. These are Ethan's peers. These are his friends insisting that he must be friends with typically developing other adults seems to not be listening to him. That would be what I would say, mm. or his desires. Experienced top-level disability providers remembered, because they were older, remembered starting out their work in institutions and have had a very instinctive aversion to anything that might become an institution. And so they were the ones putting a lot of laws on the books that wanted to avoid those congregate settings and anything that would smack of institution. Now what's coming up is people, more parents desperate to start something and have someplace for their kid to go. And um, 
uh, financing it themselves and the state seeing something that has been created, either a residential or a work setting, and understanding there's value to. That's sort of how Prospect Meadow Farms started, was mm. that they started outside of direct state funding, and then the state came along and supplemented it. Okay, got it. Yeah, let's talk about Ethan's job placement there, because you mentioned it in your New York Times article that you were referencing earlier. Yeah. So could you talk about what your early expectations for his experience there were and how that changed as he spent more time there? Ethan was like many parents will recognize. He is someone who is very social with very limited pragmatic language, or he's very good at very short exchanges. And he is very very physical in his stimming. So he likes to bounce and flap and recite movie lines. All of the things that Ethan does by nature were the things that got in the way of him succeeding at job placements. It started to seem as if it was a choice between one or the other. And I know there's tons of parents out there who will recognize this. Like you have to contain who you are. If you want this grocery store job, you have to limit the stimming and you have to not talk to yourself. The self-talk has to stop the, the all of that. And it was interesting to me because I didn't realize the day he turned 18 was the day he was allowed to quit jobs. And he learned that from a peer. So he was going and doing these job trainings that would were meant to last three months and he would quit. And if he had announced that he'd quit, they had to listen to him because he was an adult. And I would try and fight that and say, oh no, he was in a mood. He was just having some version of a meltdown. And then I thought, no, we have to hear this. He's quitting all these jobs that we fought really hard to get. They were hard to get. We live in an academic area that I thought for sure, I had thought my whole life, Ethan would end up in one of the college cafeterias working in the dishroom because he loves college cafeterias and he loves the dishroom and he loves all of that. It was very hard to get him placements in those jobs. And when he did, it he did not want to stay there. And he couldn't always articulate why, but I think it was because there were a whole lot of rules about don't talk to yourself, don't bounce and flap. You have to wash your hands if you touch your face. That one was fair because that was hygiene. When he got to the farm, he had experienced so much failure that I was expecting the same thing to happen. And it didn't. And it shocked us. And I wasn't sure why. He was just somebody who was very happy to quit a job because he figured out that was his great power. The farm started him out on machines that were interesting to him and then had prioritized a system where they were empowered to do work themselves. So there are farm hands and crew leaders. And it was possible in the beginning to work up from being a farm hand to the crew leader. The crew leader is sort of the staff. But number one, I think, difference for Ethan was that he didn't have a one-on-one aide in his face telling him outside, no outside voice, no. I think that was hugely freeing for him and the ability to be himself without somebody and to be outside with room that people weren't bothered if he was talking or bouncing in a circle. He's just a pacer. It's not disruptive unless you're trying to be in a work situation. 
you know, in an indoor work situation and then somebody pacing around would be disruptive. But at the farm, he could be himself. And then the surprise was by being empowered to organize themselves. Here was the amount of work they had to do during the day. They could figure out when and how to do it. He was surprisingly successful and ambitious for himself. And he wanted to learn the zero turn mower and he wanted to do harder things. And it was clear he felt part of a larger whole. And it was clear that he felt that he was very important to the farm. He mattered on really super cold days where he wasn't, didn't have to come in. He would say, no, no, they need me, whatever. When the weather was giving them permission not to come in, he was saying, no, they need me. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was so different than anything he'd ever done. And I think it's because he feels he belongs and he's part of a larger whole. And that's what's very hard to achieve in community-based jobs realistically. It can happen, but realistically for a lot of these kids, it's for a lot of these folks, it's hard to achieve that. I matter to CVS or to the grocery store. It didn't work for Ethan. Mm-hmm. How did this change how you measured success for Ethan? Well, uh, success for Ethan was productivity and belonging to a community outside his family, feeling like a productive person in life. And I think that is a goal that a lot of families intuitively understand that's the biggest thing they're shooting for is that you have connections to people who know and love you beyond your family and extended family or neighborhood or something like that. How that can be achieved is also through a really good day program, but I think Ethan found it at the farm. I think it can also be found in a lot of different ways. It's almost sacrilegious to say, but I think it can be found in volunteer jobs as well. And that's something that nobody wants people to agree that volunteering should be the ambition for this group because volunteering is unpaid and that's where they got abused so much before. But the problem is if you don't allow that, and a lot of places don't legally allow it unless it's a volunteer position that typically developing. So pet shelters will allow it and food banks will allow it. But there's a lot of Ethan's friends who say, this is what I do for a job. I'm at the pet shelter. To me, that's meaningful. Why are we undercutting that or saying that doesn't count for some reason? If that's what's, if they are needed and part of a world there, I still, uh, the, the danger is, and some people will vehemently argue that that works against the ultimate goal of getting paid full, you know, full paid community-based jobs. But I feel like most parents would say the real goal is belonging somewhere and having something to do. And waiting around for the full the community-based job means a lot of people are sitting at home on their parents' sofas, unfortunately, and not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So what's the best route for parents as they are approaching this disability cliff. I was most impressed when I was traveling around the country by places that were started by parents while their kids were still young. They just got together with other parents and with the instinct or intuition that eventually what my kid will need is some kind of community. And so whatever that would look like, and for some it's a work or 
a work situation. So there's parents who are starting small businesses, coffee shops, a garden, a food delivery, a snack cart, all kinds of different parent or family started jobs. And those are wonderful because instinctively they end up hiring and engaging lots of other people with disabilities, a wide variety of disabilities, and it works really well. There's tons of those examples around. One of the most successful is in Florida, Rising Tide Car Wash, that it was started by a father and his son, who was kind of a businessman for the brother who was autistic. And he's ended up employing, I think, close to 100 people with autism at separate sites. And oh boy, are they ever successful at that. It turns out they were trying to figure out what what are autistic people great at. It's detail-oriented. It's following steps, and they've got a 35-step process to washing the cars. So they actually started when Andrew was approaching the disability cliff, so they didn't start too late. I just am admiring the ones that started much earlier. I think along the same lines, the parents who were thinking about residential early on really got a head start, and they're the ones with the most exciting options for, uh, and those are happening all over the country now. And they seem to be happening frequently, though I don't know if this correlates, in the states that have the longest wait list and the least money available, had the most parents that were scrambling to see the state isn't going to take care of this issue. We need to. And then in Florida, for instance, they were offering some kind of assistance in low income tax benefits, low income tax something. And um, groups of parents were just starting to uh, and get donated land that was not being used elsewhere in Florida, has lots of this. They also have the model of retirement communities. And That is where more groups are starting to think is that how can we build a little complex that would look somewhat like a retirement village, have a swimming pool, a community center, but wouldn't be overall care. It would be staffed. It would be lightly staffed because the big issue for the modeling is how much staffing, but parents would be part of it and individuals would have their own staff coming in. But we would be a community with activities every day, with connections with each other, with um, the ability to teach each other how to live independently. And visiting those places was probably the most eye-opening to me because I would arrive thinking, Ethan could never do this. This is so interesting. This is all for higher functioning young adults. And then I would meet and talk to someone who was reminded me so much of Ethan. And, you know, the director would explain this person just learning had a really good roommate and the roommate taught him how to go to the grocery store, how to cook dinner. Those are things that in Massachusetts where the housing opportunities are really limited, we just haven't seen how they can teach each other independent living skills, how they can support each other, how Massachusetts tends to put a very high priority on high staffing ratio, which means very, very limited housing opportunities because everybody needs to have a one-on-one staff. It's not a model that's going to be able to move forward in the next 20 years realistically because it requires so much funding. Mm -hmm. So the ones that are looking at examples that require less staffing seem to be the ones that, and and still be safe, because that's the whole 
question for parents is, is this going to be safe? Is my kid going to be okay? What's going to happen after I'm gone? Who's going to look after them? So those are crucial questions. But I feel like I was very heartened to see our kids are going to be capable of more if we allow them to learn more early on and allow them to learn from each other, which is was a huge part of Ethan's success at Prospect Meadow Farm is that he immediately attached to not staff necessarily, but other farmhands who were slightly better at him than certain things and they would teach each other. I feel like that's something that doesn't get explored enough. Hmm. Yeah. Kind of like peer mentoring in a way. Peer mentoring. Yeah. Which happens naturally if there's not staff, you know, if it's not overstaffed from Mm -hmm. the get go. Yeah. The idea that you have to do it all yourself is hugely daunting. And I am very sympathetic to ones who are saying, I can't possibly do that. I don't have enough people around here. So then more realistically, I would say, and quickly add, you're looking for the places where your child feels most successful and happiest, and you're trying to figure out how to get them in groups and communities where they feel good and successful and pushing for the accommodations or whatever is necessary to get them there. And that may be a little bit of a fight, but it's also a fight that more parents are winning these days and be heartened by that because things are changing all the time. And um, there, that's a better, more realistic answer. Yeah. Okay. What comes up for you when you think about Ethan's future and where he's going to be when you're not around anymore? Good question. In fact, it's the question most parents don't want to think about. And I do feel like it's an essential one. To, and, and this is one of the turning points that parents need when they're leaving school, entering their 20s. There is research that says the folks who live independently from their parents in this starting within their 20s do better have better more productive and six, are happier in the long run whatever those measures are from my travels one of the big takeaways is i see how that's probably true that i wasn't doing any scientific questionnaires that were asking about happiness and productivity or satisfaction life satisfaction but it's a good message to parents that say to to let parents know you aren't the only ones that can properly care for your child. That said, Ethan is living at home with us and we have no immediate movement for that to change because we live in Massachusetts where the options are pretty limited and it's a pretty hard fight. It mostly depends upon the caregiver's health and that kind of thing in order to get residential funding of any kind. And I I will continue to hope that changes and work towards that changing that more intentional communities are allowed, a wider variety of communities are allowed. When I look at the options, which I I sort of detailed quite a bit in my book, it's going to look so differently for every person. And my hope ultimately is that Ethan will increase his ind- independence over time and will want to, he would say, I want to work at Prospect Meadow Farm for the rest of my life and live in my bedroom at home. So he's not pining for more independence and that has left us not working towards it. I guess that's why I started with, 
it's important for me, even if your kid is saying that they just want to live at home with us and have us. And you're kind of sure, oh, we're the best company and the best caregivers possible. It's still important to be entertaining and thinking about ultimately this won't be forever. And ultimately he'll do better the sooner he's able you know, the tragedies of people that are age 50 and parents with sudden health issues or deaths of their parents getting moved across the state to the first bed available are really chilling. And that's what's happening right now too often in many states. So the more you can prep for this, and I'm not saying I've done a super duper job, the better because, uh, and the more options or the more we talk about, and, and uh, the book goes into a lot of different options. People are building tiny houses in their backyards. That's probably the newest trend so that you are, they are independent. And ultimately when you die, the house can be their source of income and could get rented out. They could move in there with some, um, establishing something that is them being able to care for themselves separate from you you know, adult foster care or living with another family. So it's not so emotionally tied to the parents is another option. And then that can move into, there's different options, room roommates who get compensated for being not caregivers, but active and responsible roommates, you know, is another interesting option. It'll be different for every individual. Mm-hmm. And what skills should parents prioritize teaching their kids as they prepare them for adulthood? One of the points I make in the book, which is one that I wish I had heard, and I don't know if other parents will feel the same way. Ethan has autism and intellectual disability. And every parent with that combo will know that you don't let that stop you from making a lot of academic goals because it seems so crucial that they learn to read do basic math, understand comprehension, all of those academic goals. But in retrospect, I now understand that some of the material that I was desperate for Ethan to keep up with academically is has been less important for his overall life and for his adult life. So me frantically putting him in accommodated science class that was learning parts of the cell was maybe not the best. (laughs) I was doing that back in middle school, but every parent will know you don't want to give up on academics. You don't want to give up on academics. But the problem is, I think in the long run, the skills that seem to matter most is their adaptability to some kind of work, whatever that might be, or something where they are putting in effort and being successful. And then able, those work skills are things like what are called the soft work skills are things like being able to follow directions, take a suggestion from a boss and and utilize it and improve your job. Ethan was terrible at a lot of these things and he would get criticized once and he would fly into a rage because he likes really, really positive things where everybody loves him. He's very appealing and sweet. And then until you kind of pushed the wrong button and a lot of these kids are this way. So he loves laughing and, and carrying on. And then somebody says, no, you need to repack the grocery bag a different way. And he couldn't deal with that. I would say working on frustration tolerance and ability navigating the world 
one of Ethan's gifts is that he can walk into town by himself. And that was the one thing they concentrate because he always wanted that. Something like independent maneuvering bus systems, public bus systems, doesn't occur to parents until right before their child reaches adulthood. And that ends up being the most freeing thing they can possibly have at their access. If they can navigate getting places they want to go, they are a whole different, their life looks entirely different. So buses, public transportation, and safety in public, and parents trusting or at least entertaining the idea that your adult child might be able to do more than you think they can and let that happen. That's one of the only smart things we did in transition was say, let's watch you follow Ethan around town and see what he's doing and getting the word back that he is safe. He does what he says he's going to do has changed that every weekend he walks into town and talks to his folks, you know, his whoever his friends are gets his soda and his Chinese food and comes home. And it's his, that's, a huge pleasure that he has that he didn't develop the skill to do that until he was probably 19. Mm-hmm. How did you teach it to him? The school, we got the school's help that they school was close enough to town oh, and right. they had an aide tra- of trailing after him. But it's also possible. I just saw when I was traveling around, I saw a lot more young adults who were, seemed to be more or less at Ethan's level, who had just been granted the power to do a lot more on their own. So in Florida, because their parents had created this community where they were all going to uh, take the bus and do their grocery shopping on their own and manage that, they learned an ATM. Money is a huge stumbling block for so many of these folks. And ATM cards are so easy that empowering them with the ability to buy something with that simple action is a gift. And with that simple power, you know, the skill to, you don't have to know what money, you don't have to make change for a 20 or a quarter or anything to be able to just go and buy your food that you want. Those who can do that seem to have a greater, a wider life, you know, more of a life, I would say. Mm-hmm. And. How about on the topic of sexual education? Have you had conversations with Ethan about this? Yes. And as a matter of fact, I have a piece coming out in the New York Times. It was supposed to be today, but it might be tomorrow about the need for more federal mandating sexual education because in in starters to address the terrifying issue that with increased independence comes increased danger and that danger is real and the incidence of sexual assault, these folks in the autism and IDD community are estimated to be seven times more likely to be the victim of assault than their non-disabled peers. So that's the ultimate fear for parents. The number one protection is better education because the number one danger is actually people they know. If they have better education, they have the language to report, they have the understanding of what's appropriate and not appropriate. And shockingly, in our country, it is not mandated to have any sex education at all for people with disabilities, except in three states. 
None, zero. So what happens if it's not federally mandated and uh, some states are taking it on themselves, those three are saying, yes, all SPED classes need to cover basics of self-protective, good touch, bad touch, which is only the beginning. If it's not federally mandated, it is very often left up to the individual school systems and individual superintendents who will not address this. It's It's too prickly an issue. It's too difficult unless parents demand it. And I didn't understand this until Ethan was 17 and other parents were demanding it. And I thought, oh my gosh, I live in Amherst in Massachusetts where everybody is pretty liberal and pretty educated. I would have thought, I thought it was happening in school and it was not because nobody had demanded it. Ethan knew nothing. So the first thing parents of younger kids should do on this topic is find out How much are they part of sex ed? Starting with puberty. So this isn't a big mystery. And that is so devastating to some of them, the mysterious changes of puberty that parents aren't going to address because they assume that schools are, and too many schools are keeping sped kids out of those puberty classes. So make sure your kid is in the puberty class. And then start with asking for rudimentary sex ed and what it would look like. And after that comes the next step, which is figuring out how these individuals can manage their own sexuality and their own potential for healthy relationships. And that's what a lot of parents don't want to consider or think about and oppose sex education, thinking if he hears about it, he's going to want it. And the reality is they've already heard about it. It's too pervasive on TV and movies for them not to already know that sex exists and everybody's talking about it and everybody seems to like it. And there's wonderful programs and curriculums out now that teach healthy relationships and consensual sexuality and bringing this pleasure into their life. And it will be different for different, if if they are ready and want this, it is far better to do a careful and thoughtful program that includes just development of good relationships, not to limit the knowledge that they have or try and cut it off. That That's what leads to really inappropriate and very ostracizing behaviors. And we got to start from the beginning of how to, how to do this right and how to do this well and how to get a girlfriend. And I wish I had known a lot of this earlier. And for Ethan, we did a terrible job. I mean, there's ways that it might seem like we were very proactive parents, but we did a terrible job with this. And just depending upon the schools to do it. So I assume a lot of parents, you just feel like, oh, that's the most awkward conversation. If he's not asking, I'm not going to bring it up. Why bring it up? Let's let's keep going over money, making change for a quarter. And um, it's better to go over the nuts and bolts, and especially as their bodies are changing, they're more aware of that. I I wish I had done more of that when Ethan was younger. Well, how old is he now? You said 25. Do you think it is still a possibility to have that conversation with him? Oh, we do now. Okay. And he has taken classes. He does not love talking about it. So many of them won't. He he will like put his fingers in his ears and say, no, this is embarrassing. But he also 
liked having girlfriends. He doesn't right now, but he has in the past had girlfriends that he holds his hands with. And I sort of talk about this in the book, but he never wanted to go on dates or talk on the phone. He liked having a girlfriend that he would, you know, see at school and it was someone else in his classroom and they went to one best buddy's prom and then another girlfriend that so the idea of romantic attachments is very real for him and I think for many of them for most I would say the desire for that but when we talked about doing just getting together or going on dates he he really put up a big wall about that and thought it was too awkward and he didn't want to do that so he's not ready for that yet but um then we talked about it in other ways when it came up in movies and then he's taking then his school did do programs on it so hopefully he's he's got it I was very surprised. This is what my op-ed in the New York Times is about. I was shocked at when I learned that in other countries, it's far more standard to start what's called relationship and sexuality education is mandated throughout the UK, starting in their equivalent of first grade. So when they're six years old, and then it's relationship development, a relationship education that becomes puberty and sexuality education by the time they get to middle school, their version of middle school and high school. But by starting it so young and by starting in that it's anti-bullying and it's inclusion and a range of families like mandated by this, by the government is the inclusive talk of uh, different kinds of families and single sex parenting and, or gay parenting. It's just surprised me that in, the UK, they might be this far ahead of. They've laid all the groundwork later on for real the really important conversation that everybody needs, but like online safety, what consent means, LGBTQ identity, all of that stuff. We're way, way behind other countries because it is such a um, thorny issue for us because we're still teaching abstinence mm-hmm. in 30, yeah. you know, abstinence only in 30 states or something. I was just shocked that we were not farther along. Well, I think religion plays a big role in that. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And, and you know, it directly correlates that teen pregnancy seems to go down when, and that would be one measure of the success of, of sex education, goes down when the education isn't abstinence only and is wider and mm-hmm. is more empowering so that if you include education anyway, so, and, and relationships seem to be there. I think the two measures would be, um, and this is too far off the topic, but the two measures of success would be suicide and teen pregnancy, because the kids who are in minority groups still have such a high rate of suicide or attempted suicide. And so the more that you just understand this is possible, this is okay. But in our group, I think in the autism community is understanding self-protection that should be the minimum that's that's mandated is understanding good touch bad touch mm-hmm. which which is already sort of a dated notion because there's a confusing aspect to it because you're saying that um it should be much more focused on healthy relationships, not good touch, bad touch, because then it's, it teaches too many kids. You can never touch anywhere under my bathing suit. And it removes the possibility that yes, you can say, yes, you can want that if you, you know, which is a complicated concept. Mm -hmm. 
All right, Cami, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to parents who are at the beginning of their journey? I would say take heart, parents. It's an actually, it is a very exciting time with a lot changing very quickly, I think. I believe that the more parents can connect with other parents, the stronger they'll be, the more of a force that they'll be, and the better their child will be in the long run because you will have a community based, even if it's monthly get-togethers in the park or um, continuing those seems to be where the creation of solutions has happened. And it will seem like there are so many roadblocks in the way when you're, especially as you're trying to get funding and you're trying to get access to the good places that you're seeing around you that are all have really long wait lists if parents are frustrated with that. If you keep at it and you keep with it, and you push, you will not only get your child access to those places, but you will see that your voice can be heard. I've been surprised and pleased by how much states have responded to parents and what they have been asking for and fighting for and how quickly they've adapted. Like you will be heard. It won't be easy at first, but I believe you will be heard. If you stay with it and connect with other parents, you will get a successful situation for your child where there is both community and a sense of productivity and a sense of purpose. And it's happening more and more. I saw more and more examples of it around the country that looked a wide variety of different ways. So keep your mind open for what that might look like and also be ready for your child to surprise you in what they can do. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, Cami, how can people learn more about you and pick up your book? It is available now and my website, CamiMcGovern.com. And I would love to hear from people if they want to write me there. My email is there. Okay, perfect. And the book is available from all resources, independent books. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing your ideas with us. This has really been very eye-opening and I think useful for parents to hear as they approach that stage in their child's life. Yeah, I hope so. I was not well prepared on many fronts or in many ways, and I hope this helps some parents out there. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. The transition into adulthood can be very complex for autistic individuals. Aging out of the school system means losing access to most social, educational, and vocational resources. Unfortunately, only 15% of adults with disabilities find paid employment. Cami's message brings hope for parents who want to ensure the fullest life possible for their children. Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Are you a self-advocate willing to share your experiences and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world.
Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.